Hi folks, Jack Spierko here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. <laughs> Commercial-free versions of past episodes. Podcasts blast from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. And today, folks, we are rewinding all the way back to February 19th, 2010, so almost seven years ago, I guess. And uh, it is quite a ways back. And this show is about ballistics and ammunition components. This was another one of those shows I didn't know how it would go over when I, I came up with the idea to do it, because I thought it's kind of, I don't know, ballistically nerdy, I guess, is a little bit geeky, going into things like sectional density and uh, ballistic coefficients and what all those numbers mean. And in the intro to this show, I kind of said that even if you're not into guns and ammunition a lot, it is kind of like learning a secret language, and I think there is something in that to it. And a lot of people really liked this show when it came out as many years ago as it was, and I thought it was worthy of a rewind today. Because I had a lot of people email me and say, Jack, I, I get it now. I, I now understand what all this stuff means. And what I heard from a lot of people is, I have friends that know all this stuff, and I sort of kind of get it, and I know that a bigger number is supposed to be better and all. And a lot of times I'm in conversations, and I just kind of nod my head and go, oh, yeah, because I don't want to be the guy that's like, well, what the hell does this mean? And I think that happens in a lot of places. It happens in the computer industry all the time. You know, people start rattling off like what their processor speeds at all are. And people are like, oh, wow, yeah. They're like, I have no idea what this guy's talking about. And with ballistics, I think this stuff is actually interesting if you understand what it means. If you get what it means. If you understand that, for instance, a high sectional density leads more than anything else to a greater ability for that round to penetrate if everything else is equal. So if you have two, uh, two different rounds that are traveling about the same speed and one has a higher sectional density, it means it's more dart-like and it's more likely to be able to penetrate well. And there's a lot of other factors that you'll hear about today that affect that because it's not the only one. But then that number means something to you. So when you're selecting ammunition, even if it's preloaded, you can look up the components and you can understand why you might select one over the other. You will understand things like why simply going to a higher ballistic coefficient will generally do more for, for, for you than shoving an extra 100 feet per second out of a handload. All of that will make sense by the end of this episode. Another reason I d decided to, uh, to do this topic, I thought it was fitting given where I am right now. If you're listening to this episode, probably went out pretty early in the day on a Friday since it was pre-recorded uh, on Thursday as a rewind for you. But I'm either already in the blind somewhere or I'm in my truck rolling down to South Texas to go shoot Bambi in the face. And uh, in spite of everything you're going to hear today, I kind of wanted to point out that this is good information to know. But people take this stuff way too far. And what I mean by that is, you know, people will sit for hours or days or weeks with ammunition catalogs, and doing research online now that you don't have to use catalogs. I remember being a kid going through catalog after catalog, right to get Remington and right to Federal and right, and going through all of this stuff to pick the perfect round. And you know what I'm about to shoot Bambi in the face with? A 308. Shooting 150 grain green and yellow Remington Corlocks, and that ammunition's been around 
not the particular box, but that particular load has been around longer than I have. I'm in, I'm 45 years old this year. I turned 45 in, in August, and I looked it up, and Remington core locks were invented before I was. And, and because of that, a lot of people say, well, why aren't you using the new badass ammunition and whatever? Well, because I stick it in my little Savage Model 10, my, my, you know, my gun that's almost as old as me, and I point it at Bambi, and I shoot her not really in the face. I just say that for humor. I shoot her behind the shoulder, and a hole goes all the way through her, and she tumbles over and falls down and dies. Because the deer didn't get bigger over the last 50, 60 years. They didn't start wearing body armor. You know, they're not out there in ballistic vests. They're not wearing ballistic helmets. You know, they're not out there with claymores or shooting back at you or something. They're still just a dadgone deer. And I think there's a place for really looking for the round that can shoot the furthest for you. I think that's that is a, a, there's a place for that. But when you're going to go sit in South Texas in a box blind and shoot a deer at 100 to 200 yards, if you can't get it done with a Remington core lock, you can't get it done. I mean, that's just that's just obvious. That's the way that it is. And so why mess with a good thing in that situation? Conversely, if I was going on a guided hunt for, let's say, pronghorn antelope, and my goal wasn't just because, I mean, shooting an antelope ain't real hard, and they don't need no more killing than, than whitetails do. But if I was going to be out on the Wyoming plains with a guide, and I had a lot of money tied up in it, and I knew that that record book pronghorn might be 480 yards out, and I'd have to make that shot if I wanted to take that shot that day, well, then I might put a lot more thought behind What's the ballistic coefficients of this round? So we use this information when and where it actually matters to us. Another example, if I was going on a hunt for elk, and I was going with a guy, and I was looking to put a big old 6 by 6 you know, on the ground, and, and I know these animals are big, and I know they're tough, I'm going to put a little bit more thought into the structure of that bullet and to what its terminal performance is like, then shoot a 110-pound Texas white-tailed deer. Because it matters there. If I'm going to go out and I'm going to see what is this rifle capable of at 500 yards, to get the most out of it, I'm going to be putting premium ammunition with premium bullets through it. But I think it would still be interesting to shoot the damn thing with, with what I would call stock ammo. You know, your, 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 your white box Winchester, your green and yellow Remington, you know, your, your, your jet, instead of going to federal premium, your plain old federal ammo, what have you, and see, well, what does this rifle do with what you would call low-tech stock ammo, and then put those, those you know, perfected reloads through it, and what's the difference? And knowing the things that I'm going to talk to you about today allows you the ability to make those decisions and it also determines when you don't need to waste time with them. I mean, for instance, this week, I've got so much going on. That's why there's three rewinds this week. That almost never happens when I'm not away or doing a seminar or something. Um, so I don't have a lot of time. I've got a rifle zeroed with, with this stuff. It's been on zero with that same ammo forever. Why would I screw around right now in a time crunch? Because this opportunity to take this hunt just kind of popped up for me. I got an email from these people that I've hunted with several times and say, we have a hunt available if you want it. 
So I didn't have a lot of planning into this. I, I really hadn't planned on actually hunting until after the workshop. But when this opportunity came up for the price, which was very, very affordable, $500 bucks to go out there and shoot two deer, um, I was like, yeah, I, I want to do this. I want to take this opportunity. So the fact that I know that I just do not need to worry about you know getting some super SST or something like that to take out an armor-plated deer is useful to me. I'm not stressed about it. I'm not like, gee, I hope. And I'm not using a new round just to use a new round where I'm going, now i got to get down there early enough to zero my rifle, and then I'm worried whether or not maybe something's going to go wrong with it. I just take two rifles. Both have their own little green and, box, uh, green and yellow box ammunition. I'll go down to their rifle range just because it's a responsible thing to do when I get there, pop off one shot. If it lands you know, center on the target, I'm done. I'm done. I'm going to the blind, and I'm shooting me a deer. With no concerns. When you have a fundamental understanding of ballistics, you start to realize that all of this stuff that's pushing the envelope of what's possible is so bit far beyond what's necessary that you only go down to it when you know when you feel like there's a reason for it, or because it's interesting, or because you just want to, and you do things like that when you have the time and because it's entertaining to you. And I also think there's just something good about learning new things. So even if you're not a gun person, when you understand all of the things that you're going to hear about today, it'll give you a greater understanding of science and physics and things like that that apply in so many other places. And it'll also help you break down the mental barrier. I mentioned that I lost a couple hours this week because one of my friends, one of my friends and neighbors, He came over to see me. This guy's in his 80s. He served with uh, Navy, uh, Navy as a Navy corpsman with Marine Recon for two tours in Vietnam. Gave a lot to his country. Um, he's just a hell of a good guy. He's been a college professor, and he's worked part-time at Lowe's or Home Depot. I mean, like, just kind of does all kinds of things. And he's a writer. And he's writing this book, and he wants to know how to market it online. So we sit down, and I start going through this 85 section piece of you know, stack of paper he has stapled together of all these things that he looked up that authors should be doing to market their product online. And we start going through them one at a time and as I start explaining it, as soon as I use a word he doesn't understand, and you can understand being an older guy, he's tuning it out. And it's like, wait a minute, Dennis, you're a smart guy. You really are. There's nothing about this that's hard. You're just hearing something you're uncomfortable with. And if you let me explain it to you, It'll make sense so that you can use it, because you brought this to me to help you. And I can't help you if you won't listen to the answers. And I think there's so many things like that. When people start trying to help us, we start hearing words or concepts that we're unfamiliar with, and then we're like, well, then this is too hard. This is too hard. I'm going to promise you something. Nothing you're going to hear from Jack Spirico from seven years ago today on ballistics and ammunition today is actually hard to understand. It's actually all very, very easy. So if even if it's not your thing, I want you to endeavor to understand what's being presented today. And I think it will open you up to, well, I can learn how to like build this website, or I can learn how to use this social network, or I can learn how to start this fire, or whatever it is. When we demystify things by understanding the language around them, we are empowering ourselves to be better learners, better students, and eventually, better teachers. So with that, let's go ahead and rewind on back. February 19, 2010, all about ballistics and ammunition components.
let's get on with today's show and what we're going to be talking about. Again, uh, kind of demystifying the terminology around rifle and uh, pistol ballistics and cartridges and components. And components are the pieces that make the cartridge up. We'll start out with that. Um, but let's start out with what is a bullet versus a cartridge versus a case. Uh, and I'll try to maybe use this to explain why I think there's so much, I don't know, animosity, hysteria. I don't even know what you call it. Just I, really bullshit chatter from people that have to move off at other people who don't necessarily use the right terminology. And I'm not saying that the person, you know, kind of coming down on the other person is wrong. They're usually right when they say, you know, it's not called that, it's called this. Uh, but, I don't know, it just bugs me. It just bugs me to see somebody that's out there trying to learn or trying to do something productive be beat up by people. But I think the reason that it happens is that people watch television, and when they watch television, they see a lot of TV, of course, that comes out of Hollywood that's very anti-gun, anti-Second Amendment. And they, you know, these cop shows and stuff like that, they try to make a case for why it's bad for people to own guns. And they come by a crime scene, and they look, and on the ground there's a bunch of rifle casings. Right, which are the empty cartridges after the bullet has been fired. It's just laying there spent on the ground. And they call them bullets. Right? And then the person that knows that this is propaganda gets angry and internalizes that anger and says, man, they're coming down on, the, on gun ownership and they don't even know what the hell they're talking about. And then somebody online refers to a case as a bullet or a cartridge as a bullet. And then they, they take that resentment and they redistribute it to a person that doesn't deserve it. So if you're that person and you post crap like that on anywhere online, please stop doing it because you're not helping. So let's start out with kind of that first one because I think that's the one that's most messed up on TV shows. What is a bullet? A bullet is not really what you load into your gun. So when you go to the store and you need ammunition for your 3006 rifle and you buy a box, you don't buy a box of bullets. Technically, you buy a box of rifle cartridges for the 306. Okay, a cartridge is the entire assembled piece of ammunition. It includes the case, which is the brass metal part uh, that the bullet goes into. Right inside the inside the case is powder, gunpowder. At the back side of the case, all right. And then when you look at the rim. And you look at it not you look at it from the, the, the point where it's impacted, there's a little round thing in the middle of that rim, and it's called a primer. And at the end, there's a piece of lead or lead and copper or some other components that make it up, that when you fire it comes out of the barrel. That one little piece, that metal piece that goes flying through the air, that's a bullet. So when we look at it, the case is the metal brass, the bullet is the projectile, okay? And the cartridge is the entire thing assembled, including gunpowder and a primer so that it can be ignited. So cartridge fully assembled, case, component part that's left after it's fired, and bullet, the part that actually flies through the air. Why does that really matter? It doesn't. It's not that big a deal. Some of the other terminologies I'm going to talk to you today about are, are, are pretty daggone important, and they have very relevant uh, aspects and how they impact ballistics and rifle performance and decisions, but anybody that gets really uptight over calling a cartridge a bullet probably has a problem, some deep-seated need to be viewed as more intelligent than somebody else or 
they're, you know, some kind of anal retentive person that gets really, really upset if somebody uses a comma versus a semicolon. That's just spilling over into the ballistics world. But it does, it's not going to change anything. Except that when you're having a conversation with somebody, if you talk about bullets, they may think you're talking about a, you're having a reloading conversation. You're talking about a component. They may not actually understand what you're talking about. But generally, people work that out amongst themselves. But I do think people that beat up on this one have a problem. But now that we know what the bullet is, let's talk about terminology around the bullet itself. After the cartridge has been fired, the bullet's flying through the air off into the distance. The big thing that starts to take over at that point is called trajectory. And trajectory is simply the bullet's path as it drops toward the earth. Okay? Now, usually when you look at ballistics drawings, you'll see this as a big arc. You'll see the bullet rise and fall and keep falling to a point at which it falls back to the earth. There is... A misconception when people look at those diagrams. This is very important to understand because until you understand this, none of the other things about ballistics are going to make sense to you. Bullets do not rise above the bore line. Ever. Period. Never. Bullets do not rise. Period. Bullets' paths may appear to rise and fall, but all bullets ever do is fall. Mythbusters did a really cool thing. They took a 45 pistol, and they fired it like three feet off the ground, perfectly level, and figured out exactly how far it would go before it hit the ground. They went down to the location where it would hit the ground. They put a bullet in a, in a clamp three feet off the ground, exactly the same height off the ground as the pistol. They, they spent a lot of time making the switching work so it would be absolutely simultaneous. They fired the pistol, and the little clamp released and let the bullet fall at the same time. And both bullets hit the ground simultaneously. Even though one was fired from like 400 yards away or whatever it was, and one was simply dropped three feet to the ground. They both hit the ground at the same time. Why is that important? Because if you don't understand that, you'll look at like a ballistics trajectory chart, and you'll see something like... Um, if you look at a particular round, if it's dead on at 25 yards, meaning if it hits exactly center of the bullseye as long as you aim there, and then you see that it's maybe two inches high or an inch and a half high at 100 yards, you're getting the impression that that bullet's rising, right? And it's, it is going up relative to the earth, but that's simply because the bore line and the bore, when you have a barrel, the, the hollow point the bullet travels through, that's the bore. And if you took a rod and stuck it down the bore and had that person sit just like they were going to shoot, dead on at 25 yards, you'd see that that rod that comes out of the end of the rifle is on a slight upward angle. So that's the bore line. Now they're looking through sight through a scope. Now that line is dead level. That's the sight line. So if you stick your left arm out in front of you as level as you can make it and stick your right arm out at a slight upward angle so that your hand crosses uh, right about at your wrist level, that's exactly what the ballistics look like. You've got a straight sight line and a slightly angled upward bore line. So at some point, the bullet goes above the sight line, travels through the air, reaches its highest point of flight that it's going to reach, and then gravity begins to take over. As it comes back down, it'll cross the sight line again. So that's why you look at a ballistics chart, and it says that this rifle would be zeroed 
meaning dead on at, say, 25 yards or 50 yards or something like that, high at 100 yards, maybe even a little bit higher at 125 or 150 yards, depending on the specific trajectory of the round, and then back dead on at 200 rounds, and then very, very far dropped maybe 8, 12 inches out at 300 yards. That's what's going on. It's just like pointing the rifle straight up in the air and understanding there's a big rainbow arc that it'll travel. You're just bringing it much further down, and when you look at it, it looks like the shooter's firing level, but they're actually slight, firing slightly upward. That's how trajectory works. And that's why a lot of the numbers maybe don't seem to make sense when you start to dissect them. And that's why a lot of people believe that bullets rise in flight. They never rise above, again, the line of the bore. Sight is relative. You could have the sights pointing to the ground and the rifle pointing in the air. You're not going to hit anything, but the two are not bound. They move away from each other. That's the important thing to understand. So if we, is once we understand trajectory, it's time to understand the next uh, piece of terminology. I think even a lot of very experienced shooters have no idea what this really means, and that is ballistic coefficient. And it is the most important part when you add velocity to the equation of how bullets fly and what their trajectory is. Most people feel this way. If I want to shoot further with a, with a, uh, a, a flatter trajectory, so I want to have less rise and less fall, I want to be able to shoot and maybe only be an inch high at 100 yards and be dead on at 200 yards and maybe be only a couple inches down at 250 yards. So from 25 yards out to 250, I don't have to worry about holding high or anything like that. I'm so flat that I can get out to those longer distances. And then even if I go out to 300 yards, I don't have to hold that high. I can maybe hold up at the backbone, and I'm down in the vials of a deer, right? So that that goal is usually met with the thought of, if I go with a more powerful cartridge, shooting faster, with a lighter bullet, I can shoot further. This is not true. In fact, it usually works somewhat the opposite way. It is true that if you take a lighter bullet and use the same charge of powder, it will travel a bit faster. But the problem with lighter bullets is they shed their velocity faster. In other words, they decelerate faster once they're up to speed. So if I have uh, a bullet of the same caliber and one is 180 grains of weight, which is a unit of measurement, and I have one that's 150 grains of weight, and they're loaded in very similar loads, when they come out of the end of that barrel, the 150-grain bullet is traveling faster than the 180-grain bullet. But 200 yards down the pike, so to speak, that 150-grain bullet has shed its velocity, and now the 180-grain bullet is traveling faster or retaining more of its original velocity is a better way to look at it. Well, what causes that? What makes that whole thing happen is something called ballistic coefficient. Here's the most important thing you can know about ballistic coefficient. The higher it is the more ability the object has to fly. And that's really what it comes down to. High ballistic coefficients can fly well. So here's the key. This is the important part. If I have two bullets, both with a ballistic coefficient of, oh, I don't know, let's just pick a random one, 3006, 180 grain bullet, 0 0.475, 0 0.474, somewhere in that range. Now, Here's the important thing to understand. You have 280-grain 306 bullets, one with a very high ballistic coefficient, because let's say it has a boat tail, so the back end kind of slopes down a little bit, and it's a, and it's a pointed bullet, so it goes to a very fine point. 
You can have a 180-grain 30-caliber bullet with a round nose. It doesn't fly as well because it's not as aerodynamic. It has a lower ballistic coefficient. So it's not directly related to weight. It has a lot to do with the length of the bullet. Longer bullets generally have higher ballistic coefficients. Heavy for caliber. So if we have a 243, a 100-grain bullet is heavy for caliber where an 80-grain bullet, maybe for a 243 smaller caliber, is light for caliber. But with a 306 heavy for caliber, it would be 180 grains or higher. So it's relative to the diameter, right, heavy for caliber. So heavy for caliber, long bullets with points generally have higher ballistic coefficients. But if I take two bullets, and both of them have a ballistic coefficient of .475, right, and one, I don't think you could pull this off, but let's say one has a, it's 100 grains, and 24 caliber. And the other one is 180 grains and 30 caliber. And if I send them out of the end of a rifle barrel, both at 2,800 feet per second, identical velocities, even though they weigh entirely different, they will fly the exact same trajectory. Because they have the same ability to fly, and they're moving at the same initial speed. Now, when they hit, they'll have different energy levels. Right, so, but the big thing to understand and take away from this part, we'll talk about energy in a second, is that the higher the ballistic coefficient, the longer range capable the bullet is if it's at the same velocity of a bullet of the same caliber and the same, or actually the same ballistic coefficient. Caliber doesn't even matter, but generally people aren't making that decision. What you're doing is you're, you're, you're gonna buy ammunition or load ammunition for your 306. If you want to accentuate your range and you're choosing between two bullets, all other things being equal, and they're generally not, but if all other things are being equal, the thing that will give you the greatest range is a higher ballistic coefficient. Um, and that brings us to another thing. That's why a higher velocity and lighter bullets are not always the answer. A lot of times what people will do is they'll just look for the hottest load they can get. So they have 306, they're, um, you know, they, they really push it. They get an extra 100 feet per second, 100 feet per second faster. And it does very little to, to, to their trajectory. But often if they were to find a higher ballistic coefficient bullet um, to load in that round, they would a much greater extension of range. So it's an easy upgrade, so to speak, uh, on the range and flat trajectory of a rifle. Um, the next one I want to talk to you about is called sectional density. This is another one that's, again, it's quite relative, and it's difficult to understand, but it has a lot of meaning behind it. Sectional density is the ability of a bullet to penetrate. Now, now what, what does that mean? I mean, all bullets penetrate, right? Well, generally speaking, high ballistic coefficient bullets have high sectional densities. Not necessarily. Sectional density is really all about weight for the caliber, so, in other words, how heavy is the bullet relative to other bullets in the same caliber? So, if we take a 44 Magnum and one uh, pistol cartridge has a bullet in the end, if it's 180 grains, we have another one with 240 grains, the 240-grain bullet will have a higher sectional density. It will have a greater ability to penetrate. This is not hard to understand at all. Think about it this way. If you throw a flat cylinder... Okay, let's say about a foot long and about two inches in diameter made out of aluminum. And you do your best to throw that like a javelin and throw it um, at a, at a um, let's say, a, 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 a garden shed, right, at the wall of a garden shed. It's probably going to hit it and fall off. It's not going to penetrate. 
Now, if we take that same stock piece of aluminum and shape it like a bullet with a point, it will increase its sectional density. Just by the shape alone, it will have a greater ability to penetrate, even though it weighs less. If we throw it now, it'll probably go in a little bit, but it won't penetrate very far. Now, we take a same size piece of stock, one foot by two inches in diameter, but instead of aluminum, we use a piece of heavy carbon steel, and we shape that like a bullet so it weighs more. We throw it at the same relative speed as the aluminum. It will penetrate much deeper into the wall of the garden shed. Even if we take the stock piece of steel with a flat end, it's more likely to penetrate due to its weight because it has greater length and relative weight to its length. That's why something like a spear or a javelin is, a, is very good at piercing things. Heavy, long, pointed, which means high sectional density. What does that mean about most pistol rounds and most big bore, um, you know, let's call them old style rifle cartridges, things like 4570s uh, with pistols, 45 uh, Colt, 45 automatic, 45 ACP, uh, 9mm, actually 9mm does okay for a variety of reasons, but even relative to rifle cartridges, 38 special, 357 Magnum, uh, 44 Magnum, they have, no matter what you do, relatively low sectional densities. Does that mean that they don't go through people? Absolutely not. In fact, they have a, a very um, a very good ability to penetrate. But their ability to penetrate relative to something like a very long bullet from a 6.5 millimeter Swedish Mauser, 140 grains, very long, very heavy for a relatively small caliber, um, and you have extreme penetration capability. So that's what sectional density is all about. It's not something worth really fretting over with ballistics when you're looking at comparing bullets, but it is a factor. And later I'll tell you about a magic formula that uses it that lets you shoot very mild, uh, we'll call them mild, rifle cartridges and get performance that makes most of the cartridges I'll talk about have almost a cult-like following. The next thing I want to go over with you today is what's called expansion and, and why it matters. If you take a bullet that has, let's say, a full metal jacket like the military uses, it generally has very poor expansion capabilities because it's cased in metal. So when it hits flesh, especially if it doesn't hit bone and get turned, it generally passes straight through. Okay? And that means that its wound channel is quite narrow. Does this mean that it's not lethal? No, but for hunters that want to anchor game and, and control how far game goes, if you have a right type of expansion, you generally are able to put that animal down quicker and have less loss of game when you have to go track it or it gets away, okay? Even if it dies, sometimes people won't find them if they're not anchored relatively quick, quick enough. What I mean by anchoring a deer is putting it down where it stands uh, or putting it down relatively close to where it stands at least. So with expansion, when a bullet hits, generally what happens, as long as it's still traveling fast enough, and as long as it's of a type of construction that allows for this, that bullet kind of shapes into like a mushroom. And you've probably seen pictures of bullets in a mushroom. But what you got to do is take your right hand, put it right in front of your face like you're going to like throw a punch straight across the front of your face. And as you move your fist slowly across, twist it slowly. So you're turning it about maybe one and a half twist by the time you move it as far as you can. That's how the bullet's traveling through the air. 
It's traveling straight as it possibly can under the circumstances, and it's spinning like a football for stability. That spinning bullet, when it starts to impact and hit something, begins to kind of turn itself a little bit inside out. Now, there's different speeds of expansion. Different bullets are constructed in different manners for different purposes. The main reason the military uses a full metal jacket is their primary concern is penetration. You've got opponents out there using body armor, hiding behind car doors, hiding behind walls, and you want to get the round into the target. So penetration trumps all. They also have, you know, gone to light caliber uh, rounds like the 223 or 5.56 mm or the M16 round. Even though it's a full metal jacket, that bullet is so easily upset that usually when it hits the body, it starts to tumble. So it makes up for its lack of expansion with how it tumbles and twists as it goes, especially once it hits bone, it gets really, really deadly. But going more into the world of the hunter and understanding expansion, if I'm shooting um, something small, varmint-like, a groundhog or a fox, and I want to shoot a very light uh, caliber, you know, 22 caliber, 24 caliber, somewhere in that range, and I want to shoot very, very long distances, um, and I don't want to kind of overshoot, I don't want to be out there shooting a groundhog with a deer rifle, just craziness. Well, I don't need a whole lot of penetration on a groundhog. Hold your hands about six inches apart. That's about, you know, from the front of a groundhog's chest to his spine, that's about how big he is. Put your, your hands out to the width of your shoulders. Now you're talking about a deer's vital area and his width. So, obviously, I don't need to penetrate as far. What I need to do is put the maximum amount of damage into the wound, and I don't need a lot of depth. So, most varmint bullets expand very, very fast. And they put a big wound channel in, but it's a shallow wound channel. Well, if I only need to, if I have an animal that's four inches thick, and I put a shallow wound channel two inches into them, okay, or, you know, four inches through and out the other side, I've destroyed everything that's behind that, that's within that hole. So I get a very quick kill. I don't have my groundhog run off and go down a hole and sit down there and suffer. He's dead when he's hit. Same thing with ground squirrels and other light animals. The problem is if I take a bullet that expands that fast and I shoot something like a deer with it, I create a horrible wound, but a very shallow wound that may not penetrate into the vital area, and therefore I end up with a crippled deer running away. So with medium game, I'm looking for a bullet with better what they call controlled expansion. In other words, I want the bullet to have a high sectional density, be able to penetrate, but still have some level of expansion capability so that we go in at, let's say, 30 caliber, and we come out at, let's say, 45 caliber. The bullet almost, you know, or 50 caliber gets close to doubling in size. Some, some of the stuff, you know, really mushrooms out to 60, 70 caliber actually does double in diameter. Now, here's the thing. Every time you increase the ability of the bullet to expand, you then reduce its sectional density because if it stays small, it penetrates easier than as it expands. So there's a balancing act there. This is something, again, that people overthink, because let me put it to you in the words of one of the great gun riders of all times. Even if that bullet expands very little, if you make a confident shot in the lungs, an animal with a hole in both lungs will only run as far as it can hold its breath. See, O'Connor had a big kind of uh, feud in, their, in his writing with a guy named Elmer Keith. Elmer Keith was a guy... Big, heavy, slow bullets kill. 
Jack O'Connor was more of kind of a Roy Weatherby fan. Light, high-penetrating bullets to do a lot of hydro shot kill. Both men were right with different methodologies of how the kill is recovered. And that comes down to energy. That's the next thing I want to talk about. You hear people talk about the energy of a bullet. It's muzzle energy, which is, unless you walk up to a deer and put the barrel against his ribs and pull the trigger, isn't really very relevant. But, you know, the beginning muzzle energy and then how what the, the velocity of the bullet is, how fast it's traveling, and then you factor in the ballistic coefficient. You don't have to do all this math. It's all done for you in nice little tables. But the ballistic coefficient determines how well it flies. So what will its velocity be at 100 yards, 200 yards, 300 yards? Well, the weight times the velocity equals the energy, okay, mass times acceleration equals force. So what that means is a heavy bullet traveling fast delivers more energy than a heavy bullet traveling slow. Even a light bullet traveling very, very fast may deliver more energy than a heavy bullet traveling at a moderate velocity because speed and weight both factor into the equation. The problem is where does the energy go? And this is why expansion is so important. So let's look at three different possibilities of a bullet flying through the air delivering exactly the same amount of energy because all the numbers work out that way. Let's say we have picked a range at which three bullets will all deliver about 2,000 foot-pounds of energy or one ton of energy into the target. That's a tremendous amount of energy, all right? The first bullet is a steel-jacketed, non-expanding bullet, and it goes straight through the, the target. It does what's called hydrostatic shock. So the way to think of this, if you take a, a milk jug or a water jug full of water and you just hit it, you see the water boof, kind of move out from the impact point. That's hydrostatic shock. Well, when that bullet bores through, it creates that shock wave all around the wound channel. So even though the actual cutting channel of the wound is relatively shallow, it still does a massive amount of damage. People call it penciling through. It's nothing like penciling through. It does a lot of shock but it doesn't do the same type of shock of an expanding round. But what happens is a great deal of that bullet's energy is never transferred into the target because when it comes out the other side and continues to fly, obviously if it's still going, some of its energy wasn't dumped. It's still in the bullet. So if it hits a tree on the other side of the target, the remaining energy is dumped into the tree. It's not used on the target. Okay? Now, same scenario. 2,000 pounds of energy, but we have a bullet that it basically amounts to a varmint bullet, a bullet that fragments on impact. All right? We hit our target, bam! The bullet only goes in about two inches. 100% of that 2,000 pounds of energy is transferred to the target, but a great deal of the energy is transferred to the outside of the target, and you'd be amazed at how much energy something like a deer or an elk can absorb. You would think if you just punched them with 2,000 pounds of uh, force, they'd fall over and die. Well, deer and elk have uh, a, a capability to survive that human beings do not. It's, it's amazing how much punishment some of these animals can take. So you would never want to use that bullet, even though the energy's dumped there. Now, we take an expanding bullet that will dump that same 2,000 pounds of energy but has a relatively high sectional density and either will almost fully penetrate the target or even maybe it does 
come out the other side, but it's going to almost drop, dump most of its energy. Now, that bullet goes through the target, does the same, not, not as much maybe, but a lot of hydrostatic damage as well for traveling through the target. Additionally, since it's expanding, it's doing physical damage to the target. In other words, if I push a rod that's a quarter inch through your chest, and I push a rod that's an inch through your chest, I do more damage with the bigger rod. But here's the important part. Because the bullet either doesn't completely penetrate or just barely penetrates, all or the majority of all of the energy is delivered to the target. But it's not just delivered to the surface of the target like a slap. It actually goes inside the target, and the energy is dispersed throughout the vitals. That's where you get these shots where you see people on the deer channel or whatever, and they shoot the deer in the chest, and he doesn't even move. He just drops like somebody set off a dynamite charge inside his chest. And in a way, that's sort of what it is. Well, that's a combination of an ability to penetrate matched with an expansion capability, matched with a sufficient energy profile, for the targeting question. So this would be, if I wanted to do the same thing to a fox or a coyote or an animal in the 35 pounds, you know, from 15 pounds for a fox to 35 pounds for a coyote, a bullet that would actually perform like a varmint bullet on a deer will perform exactly on that coyote or that fox is, is that larger bullet. So it's always relative to the target that you're shooting at and relative to the game that you're hunting. Here's the next one. Um, get this one all the time. Exactly what is a magnum round? What makes a round a magnum round? Um, and a, if you have, you have to do this in one word, what is it? I would say it's marketing. It's marketing. The very first magnum rifle round was the 375 H&H magnum. And what magnum meant is compared to everything else in the .375 caliber size, it was more powerful. It was more powerful than what they would call a standard rifle round up until that point. Well, at that point, they didn't even call it standard. The, the term didn't exist. And once that round came out, a lot of things began to ha- happen. Um, the next thing you know, the 300 H&H Magnum came out, and then the 300 Winchester. And over time, more and more Magnum cartridges came out. But all of the, all that this really means is that we have what we consider today, because somebody created the term Magnum, standard rifle cartridges. So a 306 would be considered a standard rifle cartridge. So a 300 Magnum, both of them are 30 caliber, simply is, has a larger charge and more velocity and more energy capability than a 306. So it's Magnum as compared to a 306. Does that mean a 306 is weak or insufficient or not uh, good enough? No. It really is all marketing speak. And it's led to something that I call Magnum Mania. It's amazing how many people will tell you how much better a 7mm Remington Magnum is than a 280 Remington. Now, 280 is is, um, 7 millimeters. So a 28 caliber and 7 millimeter bullet are identical in diameter. And there are some places where things overlap like that. That was to be one of them. so, yeah, okay, the, the 280 is, is so inferior to the 7mm Remington Magnum. But when you look at the ballistics, it's about 150 feet per second in difference in velocity. And for that 150 feet per second difference in velocity, you, get, you have to use a lot more powder, you get a lot less efficiency, and you get a lot more recoil. 
But when a guy sits down and looks at the ballistics chart, he sees this one's more powerful than that one. Again, you have to remember, power is a relative term. And some of these magnums do have what we would call a appreciable gain in the field, meaning the additional power and range matters. Now, if you're a guy that can consistently shoot game out to 500 yards or more, I even say 400 yards or more, um, well beyond 300 yards, 350 yards and more, then upgrading, let's say, from a 3006 to a 300 Magnum, whether it's a Winchester or Weatherby or anything, may have some real meaningful things for you. If you consistently shoot game in 300 yards or less, and in most situations except for the really wide-open spaces, I don't think that should ever be a problem. If you can't get it within 300 yards of your game, I don't believe you've really earned the right to, to take it. Maybe I feel that way because I'm a bow hunter, and I usually have to get within 20 yards of my prey. So when people say, well, I want to be able to shoot 400 instead of 300 yards, I, I don't get it. But what I'm here to tell you is most standard rifle cartridges, so when I say that I mean 243, 260, 308, 306, 270, 280, all of these standard cartridges that people seem to think just aren't what they used to be because of all these magnums, out to 300 yards, they have no appreciable gains in the field to me. Because there's plenty of energy, plenty of penetration if you picked the right load for the job. So if you're hunting elk with a 3006, you need probably a different uh, bullet cartridge combination, charge combination, than you do for hunting white-tailed deer that weigh, you know, in Texas, 120 pounds is a big deer. You might even need to go with a different bullet construction between a Texas white-tail at 150 pounds and a Pennsylvania white-tail that's 250 pounds because we have bigger deer in the northern parts of our states. So you always have to select the cartridge combination that's most suitable to what you're hunting. But the Magnum stuff, folks, it's just overrated. And if you're a new shooter, my advice is stay the hell away from Magnums. In fact, stay away from heavy-loaded standard rifle cartridges, you know, hot 3006 loads. They beat you up. And if you've not yet become proficient with a rifle, and he, with pistols as well. Stay away from the 44 Magnum. Stay away from the 460. Stay away from the 480s. Right? These big heavy Magnum. Learn to shoot consistently. And then maybe you go up a, a, a classic caliber. But let me tell you something flat out, folks. The 357 Magnum is actually relatively easy to shoot in a heavy frame revolver. Far easier to shoot than a 44 Magnum. Way easier to shoot than a 500 Smith or anything like that. Elmer Keith, who I mentioned earlier, took his 357 Magnum when they first came out across America, shot elk, shot bear. All right, so it's sufficient. Sufficient for the job. Stepping up to a 44 makes sense if you can shoot it well. But I would prefer you learn to shoot your, you know, your, your mid-bore handgun with a 38 Special with very low recoil. And then you learn to shoot your rifle with something like a, a 243 Winchester or a 260 Remington that's easier to shoot, or a 3030 Winchester, even stepping back kind of old school. But, but pick light recoiling, easy to learn to shoot weapons as your first weapons, and understand something very important. When it comes to bringing a deer home or an elk home or anything like a mid-sized game home, death does not come in degrees. One animal is not deader than the other. The person that says that the 3030 Winchester is outdated and underpowered is ignoring the millions and millions and millions of white-tailed deer that the last thing they ever experienced 
was around from a 30-30 cutting through their lungs and went absolutely nowhere after that happened. Just because we have something that's more powerful today doesn't mean that the older uh, cartridge is no longer useful. Uh, I hear a lot of writers put it this way. Uh, it's not like over the last 50 years deer have gone out and gotten Kevlar armor or they've gotten, if they started shooting up steroids. The deer you're shooting today is anatomically very indifferent from the one that your great-grandfather might have shot 100 years ago. So don't get into to, to buying magnums just for the purpose of, of saying you have a magnum. There's a lot of, uh, I believe, what would you call it, um, pride, arrogance. What's the word I'm looking for? I really don't know the word I'm looking for, folks. Sometimes I can't find a word, but... Just trying to impress people by, I got a 7 millimeter Magnum, I got a 300, mil, 300 Magnum, I got a 338 Winchester Magnum. And you have all these standard rifle rounds that are far more efficient in, in their performance um, and, far, and definitely sufficient out to ranges of 300 yards, which is beyond the range of most shooters anyway. And I know you're going to write in and tell me, I shoot 450 yards all the time, what's well, you? If you're that guy, I think you'd agree with me that most hunters in America today are not capable of making a 300-yard shot on a deer, let alone a 450-yard shot on a deer. They're just not. And they, so a lot of them have no business taking those shots. And if that's the, if that person is you, then you don't need a 300 Magnum. And I'll tell you what, I can make that shot, and I don't own one. I had a 7-millimeter Magnum for about a year. I got to a point where I decided that I didn't like being beat up by the damn thing every time I shot it. Um... And I hunt today with uh, a variety of mid-bore rifle cartridges, but I have what's called a 35 Whalen. Uh, I have a 3006, I have a 308, I have a 243, and a 4570, an old, very old um, rifle cartridge. Uh, goes back to black powder days. And I've never had to hunt anything in this country ever where one of those wasn't sufficient for the job. And they're a lot less abusive to the shooter. And if you reload, the efficiency kicks in because... With one pan, can of powder, I can reload a lot more 308s than I can 300 Magnums, if that makes sense. All right. Let's, I've talked a lot about numbers. Maybe I should have said this before. But what do all those numbers mean? Let's, let's talk about the numbers for a minute. When I say 243 or 308, well, in the world of bullets, there's two ways that the diameter of the bullet is designated. And only two ways, and as far as I know, there's never been another way. Uh, there's never been another unit of measurement, you know. Like uh, with distance, we have miles and kilometers, and there's some other ways like, like fa you know, fathoms for depth and uh, knots, and, and there's all types of things that could talk about distance and speed. But as far as I know with ballistics, the only two ways that any bullet has ever been uh, explained in its dimensions and diameter is either what's called caliber or millimeters. And they're really just two units that are the same thing. In other words, if I tell you something is um, one mile away or 2.2 kilometers or whatever it is, the distance is the same. The unit of measurement is the only thing that changes. All right? Just like Fahrenheit and Celsius, the caliber in millimeters. Right? We're measuring the same thing with a different unit. So when I say something is 50 caliber, that's based on a standard measurement unit of an inch. So a 50 caliber is half an inch. A 25 caliber is a quarter of an inch. 33 caliber, roughly a third of an inch. Pretty simple. Millimeters work exactly the same way. And there's what we call equivalency 
uh, between millimeters and caliber. So that a 22 caliber bullet is 5.56 millimeters. So when you hear somebody say that the, the M16 shoots either 223 or 5.56 millimeter, and you're wondering what the heck does that mean, it means they shoot the same thing. Those are two ways to designate them. But our military, it, you know, once we became part of NATO, Europe started using metric designations because what NATO wanted to do was make sure that if we had, let's say, French troops, <laughs> yeah, that's going to happen, fighting alongside of uh, American troops in a war, uh, there wasn't a confusion about sharing ammunition. So you had 5.56 millimeter, you had 7.62 millimeter, 7.62 being 30 caliber. Okay? Now, then you see something like um, 7.62 by 39, which is the same, which is the round that an AK-47 or an SKS uses. When you see a, a little X, so you see like a millimeter designated 7.62 crossed by 39, that generally has to do with the length of the cartridge in millimeters. So when you look at the AK round, what you actually see is that the cartridge itself, so if we take a bullet out and we just have the case, the cartridge, the piece of metal that stays behind, and we put a caliper on that and we measure it from its rim to its edge, it's 39 millimeters long. So the, the, the Soviet designation was a, a bullet of 7.62 millimeters and a cartridge of 39 millimeters in length. Another Soviet designation, 7.62 by 54R. So these are the modes in the guns that you just have this weird cartridge, 7.62 by 54R. What does that mean? 7.62 millimeter bullet, 30 caliber, in a case that's 54 millimeters long, and the case is rimmed. In other words, if you look at the end of it, it's got a big flat rim. It's not what they call semi-rimmed uh, or rimless. It's got a big flat, you know, button-looking rim that, that, that head spaces the, uh, the round when you put it into the chamber. So that's what a lot of these, when you see an R in a designation, it just means the cartridge is rimmed. Not a lot of those, but there's some. When you see a millimeter by a millimeter, generally the second number is the length of the cartridge. So that instead of saying 308 versus 3006, using that designation we would give 7.62 millimeter X by the number of millimeters in the length of each cartridge. All right? So it's pretty simplistic Really, it just sounds complicated. Now, where do kind of millimeters and calibers line up and become the same or become even, you know, both of them are an even number? A classic point is 28 caliber is absolutely the same as 7 millimeter. So, uh, two, 26 caliber is the same as 6.5, excuse me, 6.5 millimeters. So why does that even matter? It matters because if we read about a cartridge and we find out that it's something we might like to have, often there's an equivalent uh, cartridge uh, that looks very, very different, but when we look at the performance, they're almost identical. Let's go with the 6.5 millimeter. There's an old rifle cartridge uh, that was uh, commonly used in Sweden's Mauser rifles for their military. It's called a 6.5 by 55 millimeter Swedish. So now we know what that means, a 6.5 millimeter bullet into a cartridge that's 55 millimeters long, which is a relatively long cartridge. It fires 
a 6.5 millimeter or 26 caliber bullet, uh, and usually in uh, weight ranges from 120 to 140 grains. Again, a grain is a unit of measurement that's used mainly because bullets are so light that something like ounces would be ridiculous. So you can convert grains to ounces if you want to, but you'll find very few bullets that are over an ounce in weight. That's why it uses grain terminology. Don't worry about exactly what a grain is. Just know more is heavier, less is lighter. So most 6.5 millimeter bullets run in a range from 120 to 140 grains. At 140 grains, the 6.5 millimeter has a very high sectional density. It has a tremendous ability to penetrate. That means that it can be fired at moderate, 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 modest velocities and still do a tremendous amount of damage. Now, this rifle developed a tremendous reputation for accuracy, but what it really developed was a, a reputation for being a very easy-to-shoot, uh, light-caliber weapon that could kill game that just seemed to be too big for it. Um, there's a lot of moose hunting in Sweden and Finland and these, these northern countries, and admittedly their moose are a little bit smaller than our moose in, in like, Alaska, but they're still very big animals. And these guys are up there shooting moose. In fact, more moose have been killed with a 6.5 millimeter uh, round than any other caliber on the, on the planet. So when these things came into the States back in the 80s and you could buy three Mausers for 100 bucks, people started sporterizing them, and this cartridge became very, very popular with a little cult-like following because it had this amazing performance with very light recoil, very easy to shoot, but the brass was expensive. The brass being the case, the, the, the case that, the, that holds the cartridge together, right? Because it's foreign. It's from overseas. And it's not based on anything, so you can't make it out of anything else. In other words, if I have 3006 brass, um, I can turn that into a lot of other cartridges. We'll talk about necking up and necking down in a second. Just understand, I can make a 3006 into a 35 Whalen. And I can make a 3006, believe it or not, if I really wanted to, with cutting tools, into a 308. I can make it into a 2506. I can make it into a lot. So as long as I can get one kind of brass, I can make it another. Well, the 6.5 millimeter Swede wasn't based on anything else. It was an original creation, which creates problems. If you don't have that brass, you can't make it. So a lot of people are out there looking for a 6.5 millimeter Swedish uh, and brass components, and they find that it's an expensive proposition today because so many of those great old weapons have been cut up and sporterized already. People don't want to let go of them, and the ones that are remaining, nobody wants to alter. There's not a lot of sporting rifles that come in that cartridge, and ammunition is hard to come by, and, and, and components are hard to come by. Well, if they understood caliber equivalency, then you would know that a 6.5 millimeter is the same as 26 caliber. So that would lead us to look at a little cartridge called the 260 Remington. Very available. We can, if we don't have 260 brass, we can make it out of 243 brass or 308 brass or 7mm 08 brass. We can even, with cutting and, and, and some structural tools, make it out of 306 brass. So we have all these common brasses that we can make cases for the 260. It's affordable. It's available in a lot of affordable rifles. And it's the same caliber. Well, how does it perform? When we look at the velocity, except with people pushing hand loads a little bit up, in that great 140-grain bullet class, it's almost identical. And down into, like, some modern bullets that weren't available at the time that have better controlled expansion, we go into, like, 124, 129-grain, depending on the manufacturer, we get better performance out of the 260 Remington than the old suite. And the 260 is shorter. 
actually, since it has less, ejecta mass. What's well, ejecta mass? If I have two cartridges that fire the same bullet at the same velocity, they should have the same recoil. But if one uses 80 grains of powder to do it, the other one uses 40, the one that uses less powder will produce less recoil because it's pushing less total mass out of the cartridge, including the mass that burns. That's why a 308 and a 306 load that are almost identical in performance, the 308 will tend to have less felt recoil. All right? So that's how all this stuff fits together. So what that tells you, if you start to learn these terminologies, when you find something from days of old that you'd like, there's probably a modern equivalent. You just need to know how to decipher the code. Real quick, the guy that inspired this show with a lot of questions and with one really good recent question, I want to make sure I get this in for you, so I'll do it now so I don't forget. He asked me, what is the 38 Special and why is it special? The 38 Special is special because it was better than everything else called a 38 at the time. It was Magnum marketing before the word Magnum existed. Before they called something a Magnum, they called it a Special. So you might have like a 38 Short Colt. 38 Long Colt, and then they made a cartridge that was better than all of them, and they called it a 38 Special, just to sell it. The 44 Special was so it could be sold. It was better than its predecessor. It was special. That's it. Now, here's a big one that people have. Why is a 38 Special not 38 Caliber? I mean, it's almost insane, isn't it? The three... Uh, the, the, the 38 special is actually .357 to .358 in caliber. It's about 35 caliber. That's why a 38 special and 357 Magnum use the same, not cartridges, but bullets. See why it's actually important? If I tell you you can use the same bullets in a 38 special and a 357 Magnum, and you know what bullets means, you don't get hurt. And you don't have problems. You don't buy the wrong ammunition. But a 357 Magnum cartridge is a little bit longer than a 38 Special cartridge. Otherwise, it's identical. This is to prevent you from throwing 357 Magnums into a 38 Special revolver that's not meant for the higher pressures and having the gun blow up in your face. But flipping it around, I can take 38 Specials and put them in a 357 Magnum because a little bit shorter of a cartridge will fit, and that's why I can fire 38s in my 357 but I can't fire 357s in my 38 when I'm talking about the cartridge, not the bullet. But the bullets, the part that flies through the air, exactly the same as each other. Why do they call it a 38 then? Well, the best way I can tell you to do this is take a 22 rimfire round, 22 regular long rifle. And if you look, the bullet is the exact same diameter as the cartridge case on the outside. Okay. In the days of old, the 38 um, short Colt, which was kind of the predecessor to the 38 Special, was made that way. It looked like a big rimfire cartridge. 38 refers to the outside diameter of the 38 Special's cartridge case. So while most other weapons are or most other cartridges and ammunition is described based on the diameter of the bullet, the 38 Special is this aberration where the 38 is describing the diameter of the cartridge versus the diameter of the bullet. All right? Interesting little factoid there if you care about stuff like that. That's why a 38 is a 38. Now, I talked a lot about converting, like, one cartridge to another with tools. 
that's done through a process of necking up and necking down. What does that mean? If you look at a standard rifle cartridge, something with what they call a bottleneck shape to it, like a 3006, like a 308, you see the cartridge is kind of fat like a big thick cigarette or a small cigar, and then it has what they call a shoulder. That's where it begins to angle down, and after those angles it goes straight again, and that straight part is where it holds the bullet. That straight part is where it necks down to the caliber of the bullet or the millimeter of the bullet that's going to fire. So with a 3006, we have a cartridge, and then it necks down to 30 caliber. Necking up and necking down was something that people would do what's called wildcatting with, and after it was done successfully, a lot of wildcats were adopted as commercial cartridges, commercial meaning readily available from a store. And then the manufacturers themselves snapped this and said, hey, we can do the same thing, and we can get ahead of the wildcatters. So what happened, the 3006 came out, and it was a revolution. All right, I'll give you the, the evolution of, of, like, 90% of the common calibers today come from the 3006. We leave the Magnamania out, right? And even some of that, there's still quite a bit of an attempt to improve the 3006. So we take the 3006 cartridge, and some genius says, hey, man, this is a great round for shooting, like, deer and black bear and stuff like that. But I would really like to improve the ability of this round to shoot pronghorn and, and light game and even up to elk size game at long distances in Wyoming and get more distance out of it. So what I'll do is I'll neck it down to 27 caliber and bam, the 270 Winchester was created. That's all the 270 is. You take reloading equipment and you size that, that neck part down to reshape the shoulder from 30 caliber down to 27 caliber. Now we can shoot a smaller diameter bullet with a high ballistic coefficient, and we take one cartridge, we convert it to another cartridge, we change the range. This does not have anything to do with your gun. This does not mean if you own a 3006, you can shoot 270s out of it. Okay? It means that you can take the casing for a 3006 and make a 270. Well, then somebody said, ah, you know what? This would be great, right? And this was actually Elmer Keith and a couple of his buddies that said the 3006 is not adequate for elk, which I don't agree with, but they were big, heavy bullet guys. So they said, let's neck it up to 33 caliber. And they did that, and it became the, uh, the, the, the 333 OKH or something like that is what it was called. It was a wildcat cartridge. A private individual paid somebody to make a tool and did it on their own. And then they had a machinist re you know, rebore the rifle and rechamber the rifle, and they created something unique and special. Well, eventually people looked at that and went, hmm. And at the time, the 33 caliber butts weren't that great a selection. But then the 338 Winchester Magnum came out. Leave the Magnum alone. Just understand, when that came out, a lot of bullet manufacturers started making .338 caliber bullets. So the commercial manufacturers said, let's create the 338.06. And they took basically what Elmer Keith and his buddies made, and they necked it up to set a .333 to .338 caliber, and they created the .338.06. Along the same lines, Colonel Townsend Whalen was honored with the creation of the .35 Whalen. Instead of necking the .306 up to .33 caliber, they necked it up to .35 caliber. While all this was going on, people were going, well, how far down the line can we go with this? So somebody created what's called the .2506 which, again, 3006 neck down to 25 caliber. And then somebody said, well, there's a lot of great 7-millimeter uh, bullets out there. 
What if we neck the seven, uh, the, the 3006 up to, or down to 7 millimeter at 28 caliber, and the 280 Remington was created? At the same time, people were bringing these, these 8 millimeter um, Mausers back from Germany from World War II. And now today you can get 8 millimeter Mauser easy. But in 1950, getting a, a, a few boxes of 8 millimeter Mauser was hard to do. So, an enterprising gunsmith went the 8 millimeter Mauser cartridge and 306 cartridges damn close to each other. Not exactly the same, but damn close. So what they would do is take your 8 millimeter Mauser to the gunsmith, and for a very low cost, even at that time, they would re-chamber and cut the chamber just a little bit different, so that it would take 306 brass. And then they necked the 30 caliber up to 8 millimeter, which is about 32 caliber, .323 caliber. And then you could take your 306 brass and use it to create 8 millimeter ammunition. Got to be careful what you put in those chambers. All right? So, what do we get from that? From the 3006, it's direct children that are popular today. And there's a slew of wildcats in between and beyond on both sides. The 3006 creates the 2506. Okay? The 270, the 280. The 33806, the 35 Whalen. There's even a 400 Whalen and some other things. But all of those common cartridges that are so popular today, if you look at the most popular deer cartridges today, 3006 and 270 are right up there in the top five list. Now, the military always being big on efficiencies and weights and costs, besides this whole 30 caliber thing is a good thing, it's a good lethal bullet, but daggone it, it's a, it's a lot of money to manufacture when you're manufacturing millions and millions of them. So can we create a more efficient version of the 3006? So what they do is they cut down the 3006 cartridge to make it shorter. They just make the same neck profile. So basically you take a 3006 and shrink it in length a little bit, you get a 308, short action, long action. Short action and long action all come from these two cartridges. Long action is a 306 cartridge length. Short action is a 308 cartridge length. These are the parents of all the offspring. All right, so then the 308, I guess, becomes one of the other children of the 3006. Take the 306 case, alter it, we get a 308. Then we take the 308 and people start going, hey. Now, before we go there, how can we take a 308, make it shorter, put less powder in it, and get as much power or close to as much power within 100 feet per second or so of a 306 with a lot of bullet weights? Efficiency. Short, right, if I take a guy that's 150 pounds and a guy that's 180 pounds, and the guy that's 180 pounds is uh, the same height, he looks fatter, even though, they weigh, even though they're uh, you know, the same height. So it's a relative term. So short and fat, when it comes to burning powder, is more efficient the long and skinny, all right? So that's all that came down to is how much pressure we can create and how long we can maintain the pressure curve as the bullet's traveling down the barrel. The longer we can maintain the peak of the pressure curve, the greater velocity we get as that bullet exits. So with very efficient powders and an efficient design, the 308 gets very close to being equivalent to the 306. Some lightweight bullets, it might actually have a higher velocity, and as we move to heavier bullets, the longer case of the 06 takes over. But the 308, then people say, let's see what we can do with this. And from the 308, 
By necking it up and necking it down, we create the 243 Winchester, which is a 6-millimeter diameter bullet. We create the 260, which we've already talked about, Remington. Okay, we create the 7-millimeter 08, which is the 7-millimeter 08 is to the 308, right, what the 280 is to the 3006. We create the um, – there actually is a Wildcat version called the 338-08, but it never really caught on. And we create a cartridge called the 358 Winchester, which is a 308 necked up to 35 caliber. And plenty of Wildcats have gone to the extreme on both sides. But if you look at these cartridges now, 243, 260, 7mm 08, 308, 2506, 3006, 270, 280, 35 well, and 330-06. You look at those 10 rounds. Outside of Magnum Mania, it's what the majority of American hunters shoot. And then you add in some older cartridges like the 3030 Winchester, 35 Remington, and you almost run the house on what deer hunters use in America. The majority of them come from one cartridge of 3006, simply by changing the length and the, the neck diameter of the cartridge. The advantages to doing this, if you're going to shoot something that's not the norm, is as long as you can get brass, you can convert it. That's the weak spot for the 6.5-millimeter Swede and a lot of other kind of novel rifle cartridges is they can't be made from anything else. That's what people mean when they say that. And I know this is a lot of information to take in. If you're new and some of this stuff was due to you, you might want to listen to this podcast a second time. But I think it's important that people know these things, that they understand these things, because Let's be fair to the guy that gets angry and puts his anger in the wrong place by beating someone up that uses the wrong terminology. He's angry because the media uses the wrong terminology all the time and uses it in a misleading way. He just misdirects it to the guy that's not on the other guy. He's not on their side. So stop beating those guys up. But if we don't educate America to what these numbers and things mean, then when some politician stands up like really happened and says, I'm against the Glock 19 because I don't think anybody needs a gun that fires 19 times. Which is stupid. It doesn't make any sense at all. But then people buy into it and they believe it. And even people that are pro-gun go, well, I don't need a gun that fires 19 times. It's, there's so much of that. It's the same type of terminology nonsense that goes around something being called an assault rifle. You know, you see this, this, this TV show, Criminal Minds did it recently. I love that show. But they go and they look at this guy's gun locker and they go, oh, his guns are gone. And then they look at the ammunition and they go, uh-oh, he has, dun-dun-dun, an assault rifle. <gasps> oh, no. I'll tell you what. I, I'd rather go up against a guy with an SKS or an AK, especially when they were, they were chasing this guy through the woods and, the, and, and you know, with like out west. Then if he was out there with a Model 70 Winchester and 270 with a good scope, that scared me a hell of a lot more. But they take these terminologies and they twist them and they try to make a story out of it. And, you know, they do all of these shows do that. Well, if you want to be a gun owner in America and be able to defend your right to keep and bear arms and, and have intelligent communication with other people, then when somebody says something that's totally nonsense. You need to be able to not just say, look, not only is that wrong, here's why that's wrong, here's what this really means. 19 is a model number. It has nothing to do with cartridge capacity, right? No, it's not bullets that are the problem, right? You know, calling this cartridge a cop killer is stupid. 
They call it a cop killer because it has the capability to penetrate a ballistic vest. Well, here's 1,900 other cartridges that do the same thing. There's so many things like that out there. And then the other side of it is if you're going to become a hunter, you're going to become an enthusiast, it's important to understand the stuff that you use every day and when you make intelligent, or make, to make intelligent decisions, when you make purchasing decisions, to not buy something because they put the word magnum on it or it sounds cool. Or something that sounds cool and is cool and works really well to be able to identify a more affordable or more practical equivalent. That's why I did this show today. I wanted to demystify this stuff. I know it went a little bit long, but hopefully it's done that. Finishing up, guns are important to America's way of life. If you live in a nation, or unfortunately in a state that has restricted your freedoms, I feel for you. But exercise whatever level of those freedoms are left. And if you live in a free state, exercise all of the freedoms so that they they stay a free state. It is very easy to disarm a population when 10% of the population is armed. It is impossible to disarm a population when 60% of that population are armed. Armed, educated, intelligent, safe, logical, 60% impossible. That's what I want America to become. And don't be intimidated by any terminology. And don't be intimidated by the jackass at the gun range or the online forum that starts spitting out a bunch of terminology. Because generally they do that to try to sound more informed and more cool than they really are. When it comes right down to it, good solid performing ammunition is easy to come by. Good performing rifles are easy to come by. Having a bunch of accessories or a bunch of terminology will never be more important than having the skill to get behind that rifle or that handgun and make it perform the way that it was designed to perform. In spite of everything that I've told you today, being able to put that bullet 200 yards away into the lungs of that white-tailed deer or that little 22 caliber piece of lead into the head of that gray squirrel at 50 yards in the trees, far more important than any of the numbers that go along with it. The numbers are still important. Hopefully I've helped you demystify them. Learn more about ballistics. It's a fascinating thing. Remember all the stuff that we said, we'll never use math? Math pays off when it comes to ballistics. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Makes you wonder where you You can scream and you can holler, it really doesn't matter cause it all gets spent.